Good morning. It's kind of a sad day because I think our fancy NSYNC mic finally, you know, broke. So it's kind of a bummer, but that's all right. We're going to push through. Uh, if you guys don't know me, my name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. And, and what we've been doing, or what we do every week is we open up Scripture, we open up God's Word, and we seek to use it to understand Him better. We believe that Scripture paints this picture of who God is and what he's intended for us. And so each week at South Point, we open up his word with that intention. And, and for this entire calendar year, we've been in the biblical book of Acts, looking at the origins of the church. And for the last month or so uh, in this book of Acts, we've been looking at different threats, things that may threaten you or your pursuit of God, things that may threaten your faith. Um, and today we're going to look at something a little bit different. We're actually going to look at something that can threaten the church. Now, before we get into this, I want to clarify what I mean. Because when I say the church can be threatened, I don't mean that the will of God can be threatened. I said it a few weeks ago, and so I want to say it again now. Please understand that there's nothing that we as human beings can do to compromise God's purpose being fulfilled. All right? So we even read about it last week when one of the Pharisees stood up and said, if this is of man, it will inevitably fail, but if it is of God, then there's nothing you can do to stop it. You see, God wins. He does nothing but win. He does nothing but reign supreme. We serve a God who has authority over everything on heaven and on earth, and what Jesus accomplished on the cross when he died to erase the sins of humanity and what he accomplished when he conquered death by raising back to life three days later, that's untouchable. Nothing can threaten that. And the way that things are going to play out in the end, that Jesus is going to return and all sin and death and evil is going to be eradicated and God is going to restore earth back to perfection and heaven is going to meet earth and God's going to fill all of it and dwell forever with those who have chosen to follow him. That is also untouchable and can't be threatened. And so when I say the church can be threatened, I'm not talking about these things. I'm more specifically talking about individual churches and the ministry work that they do. And, and, and it's not a secret that churches can be threatened and churches can be compromised. You see it all over the news. You see it all over the Internet. You see church hurt, abuse, manipulation, people being taken advantage of, people being used, false gospels being preached, people being led astray, the community being negatively impacted, people being actively pushed away from the community and pushed away from God. I mean, it's happening as we speak in churches around the country. So we live in dangerous times, and the church can be threatened. So as we turn our attention to Acts chapter 6, and we look at this next portion of the book, what I want to do first is I want to kind of set the stage for you. If you're new with us or maybe uh, you, you're not sure where we're at. I want to set the stage for you just in case you don't have a picture of where we are in this book. So if it hasn't been made to you, made clear to you yet, this church, this newly formed church in the book of Acts has absolutely exploded. Like exploded. Like in a matter of weeks, we've gone from a handful of people gathered in an upper room waiting for God to show up. We've gone from that to just a few weeks later what we can historically estimate to now be tens of thousands of people who have made the decision to follow Jesus in just a few weeks. Now contained in this massive group of tens of thousands of people, uh, we have people from all over the place. 
Remember, when the Holy Spirit descended on the initial group, there was this festival happening in Jerusalem, and so you had visitors from all over the place. And when the Holy Spirit descended, it said there was this sound like a mighty rushing wind. Imagine like hurricane-type sounds. And, and these massive crowds who were gathered in Jerusalem, they gathered around at this sound to see what was going on. And in that moment, Peter, the apostle Peter, stood up filled with the Holy Spirit, and he preached the first ever message about Jesus, and thousands of these people said, yes, like we're all in. Now, what we often don't think about are the implications of their decision. But these ended up being massive life decisions because a lot of these people, like we said, because they were just visiting Jerusalem, what we read a little bit later is that a lot of people actually went home, sold everything that they had, their houses, possessions, everything, and then relocated to be a part of this Jesus movement. We have this massive population of believers in Jerusalem who don't have anything, who are literally sold out for Jesus. And so when we read about these people selling everything they had to make a way for everyone to be taken care of, like I know that sounds like it's like a feel-good, like block party, community type thing, but it's actually completely necessary because people in this moment couldn't fend for themselves. They are here for Jesus, they are completely sold out. Thousands of people every day who need their, uh, who have needs that need to be met. And that's just the apostles that, and the disciples who have said yes to Jesus. That's not even considering the thousands of people who have come to Jerusalem seeking healing or help or any other number of things. And so understand, like, it's no secret anymore. Like, people know who the Christians are. It's not just a couple hundred people we're talking about a small army that needs to be fed and taken care of and being responsible for such a massive group of people. That's what we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 6 today. So if you have your Bible with you or you have your Acts journal, we're in Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 1. And remember, we set the stage that where we are at, this massive group of Christians needs to be taken care of. And so it says this. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So understand, like we just talked about, people don't have anything. They don't have resources, and all resources and money are being pulled to keep everyone housed and fed and taken care of. And so every day there'd be this distribution line of people who would come through and they'd receive these things. But not only has the number of people grown to like this massive number, but now we also have cultural differences and language differences, and there's this like tension. And now we have a group that has like slipped through the cracks, and either they, they, they've been forgotten about or they've just been discriminated against because they speak Greek instead of Hebrew. And so like these problems are starting to arrive because there's so many human beings, because who knows that if there are human beings, like and their problems inevitably are going to happen. That just... That just kind of comes with the territory. And so these problems arrive, and, and it becomes apparent that greater attention needs to be given to this distribution program. And so this is what the apostles have to say about it. It says, and the 12, I got it, I got it. It says, and the 12 summon the full number of disciples, so thousands of people. And they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, I'll admit, when I first read this, I was like, oh, wow, like, the apostles think they're too good to serve tables? Like, they're all high and mighty now? 
And that's what it certainly reads as the first time you read it. But once I dug deeper, I found that there's a disconnect in this passage. And the disconnect is if you, if you weren't aware, the Bible was not originally written in English. It was either written in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, the three languages that the Bible is written in. And the book of Acts is written in Greek. And so what we are reading is an English translation of that Greek more accurately. This is called the ESV, that stands for English Standard Version. And it's usually dependable, but to be honest, with this phrase, serve tables, they, they've kind of missed the mark a little bit. Because the, the word that they've translated as serve tables is actually this Greek word diakonia. Diakonia. And this word diakonia is where our modern term deacon or elder comes from. Or in the case of South Point, how we'd refer to our shepherd team. That is a group of trustworthy people who don't specifically work for the church, but are responsible and designated to both serve the people of the church and mission of the church. And so serve tables is kind of a far cry from this word diaconia. And essentially, what is at the heart of what the apostles are saying in this moment is they're not saying, hey, we're too important to be doing menial tasks like serving other people. So understand that's not what they're saying. And that's going to be proven by the fact that you're going to continue to see them serving people throughout the book of Acts. In actuality, what they're really saying is what they're, what they're really saying would more accurately uh, read as this mission, this mission that God has called us to is way too big and way too important for just a few people to be trying to do all of it. This mission is too big for just a handful of people to try to carry this. That's why Jesus said back in the book of Matthew, he said, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Meaning there aren't nearly enough people willing to be a part of everyone who, needs, uh, who, who has needs that be to, need to be met and who need to have the gospel shared with them. And so there's work to be done. There are people who need to be served, people who need to be helped, and people who need to hear about who Jesus is. But in this Matthew passage, Jesus says there aren't enough people willing to be a part of that. And so you have this issue that exists in the church, even in the book of Acts, even from the beginning, that rather than the body of Christ being active and doing what God has called it to do, that instead of everyone doing this together, that you have just a handful of people trying to do it all. And now that brings us to what threatens the church today, and that threat is pastors on a pedestal. Pastors on a pedestal, when a select few try to do what God has intended for his entire body to do. When just a select few try to do what God has intended for his entire body to do. Now, this really plays out in one of two ways. The first way is pastors who make much of themselves. Pastors who give their own words, their own opinions, far too much weight and authority to speak over your life. Pastors who use their platforms to give their own weekly biased social or political commentary instead of using their platform to do what God has instructed them to do, and that is to preach the gospel in its entirety. You may have seen churches like this. You maybe have gone to churches like this where the focus is not about Jesus. The focus is about this issue or this thing, and we need to address this. But rather than give social or political commentary or my opinion to you, what any pastor is called to do is preach the gospel of Jesus in its entirety. And, and this is not just a problem in mega churches, although um, this, the problem is more visible 
in those churches. This is a problem even in churches around our own state. Please understand this. Please hear me when I say this to you, that any pastor who would position themselves above you, any pastor who would think of themselves as more important than you, is failing you. Any pastor who would hold their own status over yours, any pastor who would view themselves as anything more than a servant, honestly, I think they've lost their way. And if that's their positioning, if that's how they view themselves, they're not really fit to lead anymore. Even Jesus, the actual Savior of the world, said that he didn't come to be served, but rather he came to serve. Jesus said that in his kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. There's too much ego and too much self wrapped around the pulpit. This is a serious problem that exists with pastors who seek to make much of themselves, and no one's immune to it, so don't think this is me like pointing an accusatory finger at other people, because the truth is, anytime you are consistently standing in front of large groups of people and speaking to people, that comes uh, with the risk of pastors falling in love with the sound of their own voice. And and for pastors, uh, we can fall risk to emphasizing our own message instead of the message of the gospel. And so, can I ask you, sincerely, Watch closely to how you're being spoken to by either me or Jamie or anyone else that you may listen to. Ensure that the focus remains on Jesus. And can I also just ask you, will you, will you pray for pastors? Like pray that Jesus remains our focus and remains our mission because, man, it doesn't take much to lose your way. And no humans are immune to that, not even pastors, like especially pastors. And so the first way this pastors on a pedestal thing plays out is that pastors make much of themselves. Now, the other way that this plays out is that people can put pastors on a pedestal and people can make pastors more important than they actually are. Now, what I don't mean is that people are out here worshiping pastors instead of Jesus. It's not that black and white. But what I really mean is that people will neglect having a relationship with God and instead settle for living on the weekly words of a human being. People settle for a third-person relationship with God. Like, rather than opening up God's word for themselves, or rather than seeking to understand or spend time with God alone in prayer or worship or reading this book for themselves, people would allow this hour-long weekly meeting to be the thing They use to try to sustain a relationship with the God of the universe. You see, that's crazy. And I understand the convenience of it, right? Like we live in a convenience culture. And so why would I dig into the Bible and read it for myself when when I can allow someone else to read it and unpack it for me? Well, because honestly, honestly, if, if you're not digging into this book, well, then your relationship with God is either extremely weak or your relationship with God doesn't exist at all, honestly. This book is how you come to know Jesus, how you come to understand Jesus, how you come to maintain your relationship and pursuit of Jesus. And if you're not using this book, what exactly are you doing? Going based off of what someone else tells you? It's dangerous. 
going based off of how you feel in your heart, it's extremely dangerous. So what do I mean when I say people put pastors on a pedestal? Well, I mean that they let someone else be in charge of their understanding of God and relationship with God. And, and I know that some of you feel like you can't read this book. I know that this book can feel intim intimidating, but I promise you that you can read this book. The Holy Spirit will help you read this book. God literally says, if you seek after me, you'll find me. Like God says, if you're opening this book to gain a better understanding of me, I'm not going to let you waste your time. I'm going to meet you there, and I'll give you a better understanding of me, but you have to seek me and seek me consistently. You see, it is not the pastor's job to speak so convictingly on a weekly basis that you remain convicted for the entire week until it's time to go again. And I think, unfortunately, this represents a massive portion of the American church, and it is one of the main reasons why the American church is so weak, because it isn't functioning the way it's supposed to function. And so what then are pastors called to be doing? What is the role of those who serve at the church? It says this in Ephesians chapter 4, and I think it paints a really good picture. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Did you catch it? Do you see what the role of leaders in the church is to equip God's people for works of service and other translations it says to equip God's people for ministry work can I just it just feels like the church has drifted away from this it feels like instead of the church preparing its people to go out and carry out ministry work in their own lives that the church has become the place where all ministry work is supposed to happen and that's just not how God's designed it and so if you look at your own life, if you look at your own individual personal ministry, when is the last time that you shared Jesus with someone? Not when is the last time you invited someone to church. Not when is the last time you sent someone like a sermon to listen to or a video to watch. But when is the last time that you individually sat down with someone and talked to them about who Jesus is and what he's done? Why is it easier to tell someone, hey, I have this church that I go to and it's amazing and the people are genuine and you can come however you are and they'll love you. Like, why is it easier to say that than to say, I serve a God who is so amazing and has completely changed me and my perspective on life and he has literally saved my life and he can do the same for you and you can come to him however you are because he loves you. Like, why is it harder to say that? I just question what in the world we're doing sometimes, you know. Because South Point is a great place full of great people. But the only reason we're anything at all is because of Jesus. Who we are and anything, that positive, anything positive that comes out of it is solely a direct result of Jesus. And so South Point in and of itself, well, we're not 
great, but the one that we've built this church upon, Jesus Christ, he is great. And so listen, I know you love South Point, and I love South Point too, but there are going to be situations in your life where it's okay to leave out the middleman and just get right to the Savior with people. Because the truth is, right now, the reputation of the American church is kind of in the trash. If it's not one scandal, it's another. If it's not one fallen leader, it's another. If it's not one false gospel, it's another. And so don't be offended if people don't want to check out your church. They likely have some really valid reasons why they don't want to. But what I've often found is that although people can be frequently turned off and turned away from the church, that the person of Jesus draws people in. And he draws them in in such a way that is literally supernatural. Jesus is that good. And Jesus will not fail people the way that humans fail people. And so if you're going to point people towards anything, point them to him. Don't point them to us. You see, church leaders cannot carry the burden of ministry work in the world, whether or not they're foolish enough to try and do it. There's just too much kingdom work to be done. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so this has officially dawned on the apostles. They're like, we can't preach and run the food distribution program and like run everything else. Like this is getting to be bigger than us. It's time for the body of Christ to step in and do what God intended it to do. And so it says, the verse goes on. It says, therefore, brothers, this is what the apostles are saying to this group of thousands of disciples. It says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty of running this food distribution program. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Like everyone just agreed. Thousands of people. Now, I know there are a lot of miracles in the Bible, but the fact that a bunch of church people agreed about something is maybe the biggest miracle in the Bible. And so they agreed on this plan. They were going to appoint people. And it says, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came to be obedient to the faith. And so they expand the group of people. They expand the group of people who are actively serving, which shows us, in fact, that a few talented speakers cannot bear the weight of the mission that Jesus has called to. The entire body of Christ needs to mobilize and step into this calling of ministry work. And, and when it comes down to it, what I say when I mean ministry work is, is fairly simple. You see, if, if putting pastors on a pedestal, if that's a threat to the church, then understand that the mission of the church, not meaning just church leaders, but the mission of every single person who calls themselves a believer, our mission is to instead put Jesus on a pedestal. Now, if you're asking, what do you mean when you say that I'm called to ministry work? Well, I mean this. I mean that you are called to put Jesus on a pedestal. 
first in your heart and then in your life. This is what a life of ministry comes down to. You saw in that passage that they emphasize that the people that they chose were full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. That's because it's not just about distributing food and goods to people. If that were the case, they would have chosen the strongest or most organized. It's more than that. It's also not about finding the most effective speakers. That Certainly, at this point, they have thousands of people. If it were about finding the most effective speakers, they probably could have found someone in the crowd who were better at speaking to people than some ex-fishermen. And so it had nothing to do with commanding a stage. Instead, it had everything to do with the fact that they were obsessed with putting Jesus on a pedestal. And when they found the people to run this food distribution program, it wasn't about that. It was about finding people who would put Jesus on a pedestal. This is what the Christian life is all about. It's all about lifting him high and making him visible to those that he's trying to save. That's God's plan for your life. I hear a lot of people like, I just want to know what God's plan is for my life. That is, is, is his plan for your life, for your life to make much of who he is. Doesn't matter what your job is. Doesn't matter if you don't have a job. Doesn't matter what your skill set is or if you'd say, I have absolutely no skills. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've been called to put him on a pedestal. Now, I never want to speak theoretically, and I always want us to think and speak practically. And so how can we put this into action? How can you step into this calling of putting Jesus on a pedestal. And, and I thought about like breaking it down into like three points in this whole thing, but I figured, you know what? Let's just hit it in one foul swoop. And so if you want to know how to put Jesus on a pedestal, this is how you do it. You abandon your life in favor of Jesus. You abandon your life in favor of Jesus. Now, when I say this, I don't mean abandon your physical life as in take your own life. And so what do I mean when I say this? Well, this means that if you're going to follow Jesus, it is going to require him being more important to you than you are. It means that if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to require him being more important to you than anything else. That's why John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. Abandoning your life in favor of Jesus means loving Jesus more then you love yourself. And, and Jesus is clear on this. Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A lot of people think that bearing your own cross means like committing to like fight against sin. Bearing your own cross is, is signifying of death. It means the old you is put to death in favor of what Jesus has for you. And if you aren't willing to do that, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. Jesus goes on to say, therefore, if any, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's not literally saying you have to sell everything else, but he's saying I need to be more important to you than anything else. And if I'm not, you can't be my disciple. In Matthew, Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. Jesus says it has to be all about me. Like your attention, your affection, your loyalty, your focus on me. And understand this isn't an ego trip 
for Jesus. Like it is this way because it has to be this way because there's literally no other name on heaven and earth that can save us. And so you want to put all of your eggs in your own basket? Go for it. But you're never going to be able to save yourself because you aren't sufficient enough to save yourself. But Jesus is sufficient enough to save everyone. That's why he requires everything. Because if it's on you, it's hopeless. But if it's on him, it will inevitably be victorious. You see, we cling to so many things, like with a vice grip. We cling to so many things, and we love so many things, like way more than we should. And then there are also things that we don't love nearly enough. See, we love our lives. Love our lives. And as I'm saying this, you might say, I'm not like a selfish person. Like, I'm not always thinking about myself. And you might be right, but it's not always black and white. This isn't a matter of, like, someone being some selfish, self-serving monster. And, like, what Jesus is calling you to do is, like, not be so selfish or not be so hateful. Like, it's, it's more than that Jesus is asking for everything. And so I'll give you an example of how I struggled to abandon my own life in favor of Jesus, and, and maybe you can relate to this. I mean, I'll be honest. I love my life. I love my life. Unfortunately, my anxiety makes me think about dying a lot. I know that's dark, but it, it kind of is what it is. Anxiety has this way of doing that, of taking your mind to the worst-case scenario. And, and here's the thing. I, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And there are times when death scares me, but, but not in the way that you might think. As you see, I'm not afraid of what's going to happen to me after I die. But I do fear what would happen to my family if I died. Because you see, I often try to position myself as like the rock of my family, and I want to pour into and guide my family. Like, I want to be around to help my oldest son deal with all of his emotions. And I want to be around to help my youngest son deal with all of his energy, if you know him. And I want to be around so that my wife knows how beautiful and valued and loved she is. And there are times when I'm scared to death that if anything ever happened to me, like, who would do that for them? You see what I've done? I've made myself the Savior. Because the truth is, I can love them, but I can't fully help them the way they need to be helped. Only Jesus can. And if I put pressure on myself to be all of these things, then I'm going to fail them because I'm not sufficient. And as hard as it is for me to wrestle with, I have to come to terms with the fact that my kids don't just need a dad who stays alive long enough to mentor them until they're old. What my kids actually need is a dad who's willing to abandon his life in favor of Jesus. That's what my kids need. They need that model in their lives because if they have that model in their lives and they follow that model themselves, then Jesus will do far more for them than I ever could. And man, if you're a parent, that's really hard to admit and accept. But it's true. And here's the thing. When it does come my time to go, when that day comes, if all I'm leaving them with are my best life lessons, man, I'm going to leave questioning myself. But if I leave them in the hands of Jesus, 
man, I'm leaving confidently. And whether you're a parent or a spouse or friend or sibling or whatever your titles are, the people in your life don't need you to try to save them. They need you to model for them that a life abandoned in favor of Jesus is the only life worth living. I know you think they need all of these other things for you, but the most important thing that you could do with your life is model to other people that a life abandoned in favor of Jesus is the only life worth living. We get all of this legacy talk, like what kind of legacy will I leave? How will I be remembered? But you want some real cold truth? A few generations from now, you won't be remembered at all. Not even by your great, great blood relatives. You know, Rhode Island is a state with a lot of history. And, like, if you've ever walked through a cemetery in this state or, or like, looked at the headstones, like, this state is old enough that a lot of the headstones are, like, being worn down to the point where you can't even read the names anymore. The book of James, James says this. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Man, we're here today, and we're gone tomorrow. We get a little time, like a little time. We get a dash between the date that we're born and the date that we die. And if we spend all of our time focused on ourselves and building a name for ourselves and building a way for us to try to save other people, if that's our focus, not only are we leading ourselves astray, but we're missing a massive opportunity to point the people around us, many of whom we love, we're missing an opportunity to point them to the only safe haven in the universe. What are we doing, man? Like, when is it going to sink in? Like, listening to a sermon once a week? Letting someone else carry our relationship with God? Being afraid to share this? Like, hoping someone we love might wander into these doors and be convicted enough by something that, like, me or Jamie says to give their lives to Jesus? Like, what kind of game is that? God has called each and every one of you guys in this room watching online. God has called each and every one of you to put Jesus on a pedestal, to abandon your life in favor of Jesus, not only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of those God has placed around you. Man, if the American church continues down the path that it's going, where it's just this Sunday morning spectacle, not only are we wasting our time, but we are actually a threat to those that we're trying to serve because if it's not all about Jesus, if it's about anything else, stand by because the bottom is going to fall through real soon. But if we will commit to what God has called us to do, if we will be a community that doesn't depend on just a few ordinary people to carry this mission of putting Jesus on a pedestal, but actually instead take seriously that God has like placed this calling on each and every one of our lives. If we'll take that seriously, I am certain that there is no end to the restoration that God will be able to bring, not just in this building, but in our homes and in our families and in our neighborhoods. And in our state. I mean, isn't that worth abandoning our lives for? Let's pray. Jesus, we just love you so much. And God, I just, I ask for forgiveness myself when I have ever made myself bigger than I'm supposed to be.
I ask for forgiveness in any way if we've made this church and its role bigger than it's supposed to be, God. I just, we want to be a community that just points everything to you, God. I pray for every person in this room that they're so captivated by who you are and your sacrifice and what you were willing to do for broken individuals. God, I pray that that stirs up something in them that just makes them take this seriously, that, God, you need to be put on a pedestal. And if we can make you visible to people who are dying and broken, if we can make you visible to them, they have a chance at a new life. God, I just pray that we take that seriously. I pray that people understand the calling that you've put on their lives, and I pray that as they walk out of this place, you just start bringing people to mind. You start bringing opportunities to mind to live this out. And I know that things will be transformed. I know you'll bring healing and life and restoration if we will do this, and I just thank you for that. I pray all these things in your name and your name alone. Amen.